39th anniversary of the church. And it wasn't just 39 years ago this week, it was 39 years ago this day on a Sunday. And I have a 450-page book here that I... <laughs> Actually, I got two copies mixed up. But uh, I could read maybe some excerpts from way back when. I can't read the whole thing. It's 20 pages. But it's from Saturday, June 16th until June 24th. And I thought I'd just try to read down and, and uh, read you a couple of excerpts leading up to the 24th and read you some from there, too. Saturday, June 16th, 1973. Regina was 20 years old. I was 29. For two and a half years, she'd been ministering almost every night of every week in churches around the country. Now, something new was starting. And it seemed to us that our New York City beginnings were laden with significance. But, of course, many might say they signified nothing good. For weeks, Regina and I had been seeking God's will about Brother J.T. Pugh's request that we prayerfully consider moving to New York City. He and others hoped we could launch a church on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. We told no one of what we were considering. We simply continued to meet our commitments to minister in various churches. Our last commitment would be Fremont, California. While we were in Phoenix, Arizona, however, a retired minister, Brother Johnson, hobbled up to me at the end of a meeting just as I was stepping off of the short platform. He fixed me with his intense, serious, almost sorrowful gaze, reached up both of his thin, twisted hands, he had arthritis, laid them on my shoulders, then brought these words, from the Lord to me. The door of Pentecost is shutting to you. I am sending you to the wilderness and the wasteland, to the desolate places. As Joseph's brethren rejected him, so shall your brothers reject you. But as I was with Joseph in Egypt, so shall I be with you. And whatsoever your hand shall touch, I shall bless. This quiet, unassuming man then fell to his arthritic knees in tears of abject dismay, apparently because he had felt compelled to utter so momentous a word for someone else's life, not knowing that we had been praying exactly for this word. We too felt the sting of sorrow and the note of rejection, yet Regina and I were not dismayed, only sobered. Other important words and promises followed in Brother Johnson's utterance, but because of the powerful witness of God's presence, Regina and I took this much at least as God's answer to our prayers. We were to go to New York, to Egypt, to the wilderness and the wasteland, to the desolate places. <clears throat> our resolve was soon tested three weeks later less than three weeks before we were to leave for New York City, when I gave way in the pulpit of Fremont, California Church. I lay stretched out on a bench on the platform with severe chest pains while the brothers 
unfastened my collar, prayed for me, and finally shouldered me out of the sanctuary and to the evangelist quarters bed. There they had called our home church in Austin, Texas. Within minutes, they placed the phone to my ear, and I could hear hundreds of people praying for me. I still felt weak, but I felt God's presence sweep over me. My soul was lifted up in the conviction that God still had a purpose for me and that I would make it to New York. It was hard for us to believe that seven days later, we pulled out of Austin, Texas with a U-Haul trailer, but no car of our own. We had hitched our trailer to a car we were delivering for the pastor who was selling it to a relative of his in Alexandria, Louisiana. When we got to Louisiana, we unhitched our trailer, delivered the car, and had no idea how we would make it the rest of the way to New York City. Our little rented trailer stood by itself in a motel parking lot. Then someone gave us a faded green tank of a car, its vinyl roof rotted and peeling off. We now hitched our trailer to this and pulled out of Louisiana and toward a new life. We also left Louisiana with my own pastor's pastor's prediction. Ours, he said, was a hopeless effort because New York was an impossibility. It rained most of the way to New York and Regina had to drive halfway because I was still weak and had intermittent pain. I took over again in New Jersey at the edge of New York City Thus did we finally arrive in Manhattan, pulling our four-foot by six-foot U-Haul with all our earthly possessions. One tattered quilt with pink backing, Regina's grandmother Chase had made it on her farm in South Dakota. Some worn towels, a couple of sets of double bed sheets, two blankets, some old blue willow dishes, and a few drinking glasses that had come free with gasoline purchases at slightly more than 19 cents a gallon. <laughs> a waffle iron and mixer, a wedding present, an old pressure cooker, a few pots, pans, and skillets, handmade or hand-me-down clothes, and the books of my calling, Bibles, Concordances, reference works. Given that it represented a move to set up housekeeping, the list seemed more remarkable for what was missing. No bed, no shelves, no curtains, no rugs, no ironing board, and especially no furniture of any kind. Still, we had made it to the place where God had sent us, the wilderness. The wilderness was more, however, than we could have mentally prepared for when you have derived all your impressions of a place from photographs or a movie or television screen, you can have little idea what the reality is like. The photo or screen reduces what you see to scarcely more than what fits in the hand or at least into a manageable side or corner of the room. I wrote all this back then. Your senses and mind not only can easily handle, but even can also feel a little above or in control of something consigned to the corner of the room. 
and the photo or screen especially leaves you with the impression that if your own person is not bigger than what you're viewing, it's at least a quite large and significant subject that the whole scene revolves around. Even a tourist to the city retains some of this perspective. But all this radically changes when you have to come to actually live in such a place as New York City. From our secondhand pictures, Regina and I had naturally expected the slums to show the deteriorated quality of inner city life, that much we had seen in the photos and as tourists and so on. But our first experience in New York, we agreed, was one of shock at the incomprehensible quantity of everything. People, buildings, poverty, filth, pollution, of the endless stretch of restless city that could utterly swallow not only your significance as an individual, but even your sense of a mobility sufficient enough for you to even find a place where you would matter in this unending ant heap, as if you could drive forever and never get out of this city, never escape its power to reduce everything and everyone to the impersonal and the anonymous. All this almost overwhelmed us. Deterioration in small doses can be absorbed, but this was a tsunami, and a board tied to the senses that stretched on and on as far as the eye could see and then continued far beyond that. At the time, the clearest image that we could come up with, as clumsy as it was, was a sensation that we had driven into some kind of concrete internment center. This, I thought, is where people are supposed to come to escape the isolation of rural life. <laughs> this is the real world. But we covered ourselves with the notion that if we were to decrease, then it must mean that he whom we serve was to increase and that through our anonymity he would make himself known. We had never driven through New York City before, but we prayed and the Lord struggled probably, but led us through. We would have made good lab mice. We called Brother Doug Davis from Plainview, Long Island and arrived at his house about 8 p.m. He couldn't believe we drove all the way through the city without phoning for help and pulling a U-Haul. We couldn't believe it either. He said most of his visitors call from the Holland Tunnel on the other side of New York City. But this never occurred to me going into it from the Jersey side at that time of day. It seemed so simple, looked so innocent. It was after we had swirled down the entryway gyre into the tunnel, and especially when we swirled back out into lower Manhattan, that I would have called for help, at least if I'd had time to think of such an option. Instead, I was swept like flotsam into the whitewater rush of lower Manhattan traffic. I just kept floating with this metallic flood through what seemed like blackened canyons whose Stygian streams were littered with garbage. Finally, my U-Haul and I were somehow cast up by this flood onto the Williamsburg Bridge, which I had never heard of. <laughs> From there, we ended up drifting like so much debris down the eddy of the Long Island Expressway and ended up in Plainview, Long Island. 
Not much credit to our abilities and all that movement with the current. And now we'll skip some of this. Let's see. You know, I preached in Long Island that night because Brother Davis had to go to an installation service. It wasn't sheetrock. It was a new minister in one of the churches in the area. But <laughs> anyway, let me see if I can find something here. I remembered the time I sat in the Port Authority bus station when I'd been caught in a blizzard and couldn't get back to the military intelligence school outside of Boston that I was reporting back to duty for after leave. And I was caught. And I sat there in the Port Authority bus station and I said, well, I don't know much about the future that my life holds for me. But one thing I absolutely know, I will never live in this God-forsaken place. <laughs> and I was very pleased that I had at least one certainty in my life because I didn't have any others. <laughs> and then that one didn't turn out to be certain either. But, and I was there precisely because it was God-forsaken. Amen. And then I remembered my dad had said that when he was 16 years old and had ridden the rails. He was on his way to California, and he'd just been pistol-whipped on the head in Big Spring by what they called a railroad bull, you know, the people who guarded, because everybody was riding the rails back in those days. It was such a terrible time and uh, he'd been caught and got his his already fractured skull battered again and he had crawled back onto one and dropped off in Lubbock, Texas and he just stood there looking at this desolate place and a farmer came by with his family his wife and his children back up against the seat, a mule-drawn wagon, and said, uh, I'm, I can't pay you, but if you're looking for work, I can feed you. And he said, that'd be good. And he, he got on the back of that wagon, sitting on the back of that wagon, facing backwards, and they pulled out toward the outskirts of town. And looking down, he had his shoes, his brogans he had, and the toes are completely gone from him, and he was wiggling his toes, looking at his toes, and then a sandstorm came up, so terrible. And if you haven't been to Lubbock in a sandstorm, uh, unless you've been in the Sahara, you may be in for a real experience, <laughs> a real one, not a little duster. The kind where you can't see the end of the hood of the car when you're driving. And that Sam blasts the bugs off the windshield in the front of the car. But anyway, this sandstorm bellowed up huge cumulus clouds of red dirt. Looks like black thunderheads, but they're red. And uh, he couldn't see the people driving the wagon. So he pulled his bandana around his face and pulled his hat down over his eyes and he said one thing I know 
I don't know much. <laughs> but I will never live in this God-forsaken place. And that's where he lived out the rest of his life. He'd gone to California and all these other things. And then job by job, place by place, he was transferred back to Lubbock, Texas. <laughs> so, never say never. <laughs> Amen. Well, see, see what happens? Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Anyway, here I was seven years later, and the one sure thing I'd known about my future that wouldn't happen had happened. And uh, this night, we left after we'd preached the meeting in the Plainview Church, and Plainview was not the Lower East Side of Manhattan. It was a nice little church. Uh, it was in a suburban neighborhood, you know. And the uh, pastor's son said, if you'd like to run into town, I didn't realize then what run into town would involve, but he said, we could go and uh, see the place. It'll be very late when we get there. But and he said, oh, yeah, that's what we've been wanting to do. So it took us about two hours, which would probably be uh, in the traffic that was coming back from weekend R&R. You know, they, they all leave the city for the weekend, and then on Sunday night, it is traffic jam coming back into the city. And we were coming back into the city, and uh, it was bad, bad, bad traffic late at night. And should have taken maybe 25, 30 minutes, I don't know. And we came in through the Midtown Tunnel and then uh, made our way down to, that's about 35th Street or somewhere. You'll have to ask the New York experts, but 35th or 34th, I don't know. And uh, we made our way down to 14th Street. And the closer we got, the more and more excited Regina and I got. Now the story picks up. This night, Regina and I did not examine the building as visitors or uh, transients or tourists, but as new residents. At the East 14th Street entrance, a derelict lives down on the landing of the stairs that lead to the dark subterranean caverns and rat holes of the building's innards, which house the plumbing, sewage, electrical systems. He has thrown down a reeking and tattered mattress in the midst of empty cans, grease, scummy layer of black filth. Doug gave us a full tour of the place, showing us its best. We were told that no matter what ungodly hour of the night you enter, that ghostly music rises up from its battered boombox. The sounds echo up from the stairs below, where all the building's vital functions have their source. Street level above, the walls of the hallways are poorly painted in thick, runny, overlaying coats of Shiny but cheap blue, gray, yellow. Everything has that same sooty-stained, scarred, marred appearance. Black graffiti is scrawled everywhere. The detritus of dirt, always that black variety peculiar to inner-city urban areas and human dissolution, accumulates in corners and crevices around all the walls. The lighting is dim, totally absent in places, leaving uncomfortably dark quarters to navigate. At the end of the entrance hall on the first floor, two small rooms that will serve as our Sunday school rooms. 
they were formerly a bar of a discotheque. The Davis Church has worked hard on these ground floor rooms as they have on everything else. And all that work has lifted these rooms up just enough to escape the pool of entropy that has a firm hold on the rest of the building. The abused little rooms with their freshly painted white walls do look bright, almost pitifully so, in these gloomy surroundings. There's still no furniture. Nothing is as yet cleaned up from the cleanup. Paint brushes, buckets, rags, such still lie around. The tiny restrooms designated for our use on the second floor are still smeared in places totally covered with human feces and graffiti. There are other filthy things laying around in the hallway and on the stairs. On the second floor is also the small old chapel which we will use for regular meetings. The chapel walls are white, the floor and doors are caramel tan, and off to one side there's a long walk-in storage closet with floor-to-ceiling shelves which will perhaps serve as a small office. The sisters took it over and booted me out of my office and used it as a nursery. There are stained glass windows, the old genuine type, though broken, sooty, deteriorating. They still held together in places with green packing tape, and they still have a hint of a former glory. Yet God's presence hovers over this little abused, neglected chapel. Almost everyone, I'm told, has said the same, even outsiders. This first night in a little eating joint down the street, Regina Doug and I ate a hamburger. Doug assured me that this was what it in fact was, not as I thought a square biscuit with stale chopped meat. An adult male with lipstick, beads, and makeup sat at the counter down from us. This wasn't in 2012. This is 73. And a policeman or uniformed guard of some sort, high on something, was running around the place wild-eyed, waving his arms in some indecipherable choreograph, ranting some babble, and slinging a long necklace of wooden beads around his neck over and over. The darkness, the oppression, even the sinisterness is hard to take in. It assaults and buffets the senses at every turn. It's almost suffocating to the spirit. You can see why so many people are bound to their apartments. But the promise repeats itself over and over in my mind that there shall be light in the evening time, that the spirit of the Lord will anoint us to preach the gospel to the poor to heal the brokenhearted, to deliver the captives, to set at liberty them that are bruised. Some brothers seem to think we are naive, and no doubt we are, but better to be naive in hope than experienced in despair. I'm told that one-third of the entire population of the United States presently lives on the eastern seaboard between Boston and Washington, D.C., 26 million of them within a 50-mile radius of this place. When you're here, it's not hard to believe these statistics. It seems as if the wretched of the whole earth had packed into the endless labyrinth of dark caverns. The silent cries of their lives of quiet desperation pull at my soul. Yet other concerns also crowd in. My 21-year-old wife is five and a half months pregnant with her first child. 
We have no income, no reliable car, no obstetrician, no table, no chairs, no bread, no bed, and perhaps no brains. <laughs> it's good to be a little brainless when you're doing something like this. <clears throat> After I return, at about 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning to Long Island, the quiet suburban streets of the Davises' comfortable home, I asked myself almost all through the short remainder of the night, what am I doing moving my expectant wife into such a place? Is this where my firstborn is to enter the world? And what about Regina? What does she think of all this? Well, she's a real trooper. All she sees is the good, the potential, the need, how she's going to fix things up. She's full of enthusiasm, utterly unselfish. You believe it too, don't you? Nonetheless, I stayed awake all night in Long Island thinking of New York City, of my young wife, and of our soon-to-arrive baby. We don't even yet know where he will be born or how we'll pay for it when he is. Indeed, how will we pay for the rent of this chapel in our little slum apartment? Still, we both agreed that we'd move into the little flat tomorrow. But we had surely come to the wasteland and desert places. That was June 17th. June 18th, it's just some experiences that we had with different people. I turned in my U-Haul and got my $10 refund, and we couldn't move in until the next day. We spent our last night at the Davis home. We still don't have anything in the apartment. Tuesday. The 19th, we drove from Long Island into Manhattan alone. We put a floored but bright contact paper on the tiny square refrigerator. We also liberally spread some of the stuff across the front of the bathtub. It's all so dingy. Then we hung our shower curtains, some blue flowered curtains to give some color and life. We were in good spirits, full of expectation. We spent our first night in our little room in Manhattan. It was a strange, restless night. There was a terrible brawl outside the apartment in the middle of the night, and at one point, in the midst of the cursing, the screams, the sound of blows and groans, the brawlers must have fallen against our seemingly paper-thin door, for it sounded as if it were about to shatter. This got our attention, but we're doing faith calisthenics, and the Lord does have his hand on us. We also held each other's hand while we lay in bed quietly and prayed as the sounds of violence shattered the nighttime silence. We remain fully convinced that he will bless all of our labors with his more abounding grace. Brother Davis suggested for the second time that we stack boxes against the door, considering the muggings and thefts and even murders in the building. He said, later, maybe we will be able to secure the door with locks. Ten people have been mugged and robbed in our building in this same number of weeks. But Regina and I talked it over, and we'll stick with our decision. So we're keeping up our spiritual workout. The whole building on East 14th Street, in which that tells a little history of the place, um, 
that Brother Barry researched. And um, I'd just like to give a sense of some of these characters. This is the first time Freudianism was introduced into this country on a mass scale. Uh, this place was early in its heyday called Labor Temple. Marxism was introduced here. Will Durant, a humanist historian, made his fountainhead of secularism in America in this building, and he was the director of the Labor Temple at one time. Marxist uh, V. F. Calverton gave a series of lectures on Freud. Norman Thomas, socialist, lectured on economics. Um, there were lectures such as Can a Socialist Revolution Come Without Violence by Edmund Chaffee. Hundreds of thousands came and paid for these lectures. Uh, they were indoctrinated in increasingly anti-Christian secular dogmata of the times. The speakers were a who's who of the era, including theologian Reinhold Niebuhr. It might not be too much to say that the mass popularization of almost every modern secular current directed against any traditional values and beliefs rooted in the transcendent seems to have had its fountainhead at times even in this very building. Everything that we've struggled against from that time on. Of course, long before we arrived, all the famous and influential were gone the way of all flesh. The temple had become a habitation of pushers and junkies, pimps and prostitutes. The old Presbyterian church, which once seated 2,000 people giddy on the prospects of being the avatars of a new age, had long ago closed down as the neighborhood grew first too rough, then too dangerous. Since then, a dirty Kentucky Fried Chicken with derelicts constantly rummaging through its inside garbage cans, an off-track betting place, and a cheap Latin nightclub, La Higuana, had moved in on street level and extended back into what was once the sanctuary. The building is divided into seven floors, including a basement with old apartments such as the one-room flat we have on the fourth floor. So a window of our apartment stares out on a black pitch roof around which are situated other apartments in the U-shaped building. The antiquated electrical system precludes air conditioning and means that open windows affords us the opportunity to hear the tenants cursing, threatening, and abusing each other at all hours of the day and night. The stench of garbage cluttered on the roof directly below our apartment wafts up through the window. We watched as one elderly and balding man in stained and sweaty white spaghetti strap undershirt dumped his garbage out his apartment window onto the hot black roof. A neighbor across the way hollered obscenities at him through his own window. The garbage dumper gestured insolently back and yelled, ah, shut up. <laughs> then the pigeons, as if on cue, swooped down on the garbage to rummage for their evening snack. <laughs> Our Sunday school and nursery was once the bar of the Inferno Discotheque. They painted the old sanctuary with an enormous two-story Satan with semi-nude people worshiping him and made those two rooms we used as Sunday school their bar. 
the street bums and alcoholics, the pushers and junkies, the pimps and prostitutes used our little chapel for a crash pad and a brothel. They pounded gaping holes in the walls to serve as makeshift toilets. Strange white writing covered the walls like coated hieroglyphics. Layer after layer of scum covered the floors. The whole building began to smell like old garbage and grease and human body waste. Most of the people who now live in the building are poor, not used to the best, but all this, the discotheque, the drugs, the pushers, the derelicts, the filth, the violence, had become too much. Some nights the building would heave with as many as 1,200 junkies and other street people who would then sleep in the halls and restrooms at night. They would use the whole place, even the filthy stairwells, as toilet and brothel. The older tenants called first the police and then the mayor. Finally, one night, the building was surrounded by eight police cars, and the superintendent was arrested for narcotics dealing, and the tawdry discotheque was shut down. We neither personally selected this location nor knew of the history of the place already selected for us. Yet here, where confusion and chaos poured into American culture through what only in recent years was explicitly called the Inferno, or as the whole area became known, Hell's Kitchen. But this is where the foundation of our fellowship was laid. So now our little church has taken the place of the Inferno, here at the apex of Hell's Kitchen. Upon this rock I will build my church, Jesus said, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This location will surely test the truth of these words. There's lots of little interesting things about our, our first china closet, which was a, an army surplus OD green metal shelf that I, I got down the street. I put the shelf together and secured its tipping metal bulk to the wall with a makeshift wire harness. Regina loaded her handful of blue willow dishes and carefully, even tenderly, arranged them on her new OD green metal china closet, which swallowed everything. I don't think it's going to win first prize at the local furniture show, but it serves our purpose. I scrubbed down the filthy sink in the bathtub. As I was working along, I thought of how Jesus lived all of his life within so small a geographic area. But what he did and the way he lived had such an impact that his influence spread throughout the whole world. When baby Jesus was born in that slum manger in Bethlehem, it seemed as if only another pebble had fallen into one small harbor of an enormous human sea but it sent out ripples and waves until the whole stagnant sea was stirred. And this I wrote on this day back then. The waves are still rolling out into the ends of the world, and I would like for us to be one of them. I thought about how violent, filthy, and dissolute this city, this area, and especially this neighborhood, this building, and this dark flat have been. Then I thought of how the Lord has dropped us as some of his lively stones, the stones that the builders rejected, into this massive sea of people that's New York City. While I was scrubbing the bathroom, I felt hope rise in me that God might use us as pebbles 
of influence. We could start with our own lives in our own apartment. We will clean and fix up our own place and the church and see if its influence and God's can't spread. Already the infernal discotheque has become a church. Lives are already being affected, questions asked. People on the street are asking if we're from the church. At first I didn't know what they meant and just stood there caught in a bewildered stare. But when I thought about it, then I understood. And when I saw that in their own unsentimental, crusty way, they wanted us to know that they knew we were here and appreciated us for coming to their wilderness and their wasteland. It blessed us more than any pomp and fanfare could have. It encouraged me greatly. Their hope has inspired me to want to be the best we can for God and for them. The whole neighborhood knows we're here, and many have stopped us on the streets and told us how happy they are that some, in their words, good people have moved in to give a little competition to the heavy atmosphere of mostly junkies, pushers, and hustlers. We're really no better than what frightens and disgusts them, just forgiven and changed, and we haven't come to replace, but to remake and to help. But they're trying to tell us that they care, and it moves me deeply. If God will help us fix up our flat, he can help them with theirs. If he can change our lives, he can change theirs. Now inspired, I walk downstairs and begin to tackle the job of cleaning the human excrement off the walls and floors of the chapel bathrooms. I had to get my mind in a certain place for this one. A stranger came up to me on the street, pointed his finger at me today, and said, I know you're a man of God and you're for real. I want to be that more than anything. Another rough-looking character started walking down the street beside Regina and I. These sort of New York City abnormalities made us nervous at first, not knowing how to respond or what to expect. But with God, we're learning to expect the best, though I thought this one may have been a panhandler, except in truth he looked more like a mugger. We walked along expectantly, waiting to see what would happen. He kept perfect pace with us almost goose-stepping in a menacing way, then abruptly turning only his head toward us. As if he had made a sudden decision, he said, God is walking beside you. Then he spun sharply around and disappeared. I don't know what he had in mind, but I'm glad God was walking beside us <laughs> and that this man somehow sensed it. Thursday the 21st, we worked on our apartment. <clears throat> Again, uh, we prayed for two people in the home mission meetings in the basement. The church has not yet started or open. On the 22nd, Regina and I slept late today and rested at the places. We were exceedingly weary. Tells how we got one of the tables 75-year-old tables, uh, school desks, really, to use as our dining room table and an old seat out of an old bus and was our couch. We're little by little exploring the neighborhood. We've eaten several times across Ham Street 
a dairy and vegetarian restaurant called Hammers. Some people were throwing away a bed, putting it out to the street, and we got that. So we have a bed. We've been eating the mushroom barley and split pea soup. We don't know what arrangement is being made, if any, to support us or to help us. Gina and I returned to our little place on East 14th and 2nd Avenue and did another day for Jesus. Saturday, June 23rd, 1973. Last night I had to cross the hall to tell Frank, our building superintendent, that the electricity has gone off again. He's from Italy and doesn't speak much English, but he understands it. His wife answered the door. She has a sad, tired face, stringy ash blonde hair, skillets full of dirty grease set on the small white enameled black trim stove. The grease was caked around the holes and creases of the burners. Every time we've seen Frank's wife, but every time a day, she's always in the same tattered and faded red terry cloth robe. Dirty dishes, which also seem to have been stacked forever, are piled on the chipped enamel of the corrugated drain and on the scratched table. Children whine around underfoot of her exasperation, their diapers drooping in well-watered and yellow folds. The diaper smell predominates, but underlying it is always the smell of old food and grease. Her expression seems so hopeless, so full of misery. The greasy smell can't be entirely blamed on the apartments. Even in our short time, we have come to realize that although these smells are ever-present, the reason the odor always lingers is because its main source is some kind of pesticide that Frank must, like clockwork, though with absolute detachment and unconcern as to its efficiency or results, spray up and down the dull ochre-colored hallways once a week. We will always know when he is dutifully spraying, not only because of the unnerving potency of the stench, but also because, just as dutifully, all the roaches make their escape from the hallway, scurrying under the inch-wide crack at the bottom of our frail wooden door. At the spray-induced invasion, we can be sure that Frank is once again beating the hallways on his weekly safari, running all the wildlife into our apartments for disposal at our discretion. But I really do like Frank. Frank's wife, knowing somehow that we've made several trips to Long Island, asked me in broken English, are there really trees out there? We assured her that there were, and her countenance seemed to momentarily brighten with the reassurance. The change in her expression both relieved and saddened me. What a full day we had. We hauled equipment up from the basement to Union Square at the corner of 14th and Broadway. We had an outdoor meeting and they broadcast it live over harvest time. I loaded nearly 100 chairs up from the basement after we got the organ speakers and instruments to Union Square. We started out the meeting at Union Square sometime around 10.30 sang gospel songs for a long time, then Regina testified, and people began to weep when she spoke. Many were sitting 
are standing around the square. I've never seen so many souls so packed together. All the rumors and stereotypes about cold, hard New Yorkers seemed inaccurate as far as we could see. Our hearts went out to the people who were held so captive here. Some have lived their entire lives on a five-block radius. In certain areas, all the signs will be written in Polish or in Chinese. Even the phone booths are shaped like pagodas in Chinatown. Many have no idea what lies outside the little ghettos of their existence. After the Union Square meeting, some of us moved to a nearby corner on 14th Street, and God blessed and used Regina again. A multitude gathered around us. Many joined in the singing and worshiping. Tears streamed down faces, some of the faces. We invited them to the meetings. Okay, we're through, except for one more. Sunday, June 24th, 1973. Everyone is now gone. Gone home to that other country of suburban or rural America. The meetings in the basement are over. The ship is apparently supposed to have been launched, but the tiny boat now seems to be breasting an immense sea and with only one mate in the boiler room to keep the fire stoked. In short, Regina and I feel the absence of those who were here the last couple of days, but we're still filled with excitement and anticipation. It is our first Sunday our first meeting in our little chapel, and we are alone in the big city. I went downstairs to the chapel, found a long rolled up indoor-outdoor blue felt aisle runner. It was mysteriously standing in the corner of the chapel. I have no idea where it came from or how they even got it into the chapel without my sole key to the heavy metal bar, but I unrolled it as our center aisle. I set up the chairs, the blue padded silver metal chairs and moved the old lectern up from downstairs preparation for our very first Sunday service. The new world that now surrounds us, the life that lies before us, could all easily seem so strange, so overwhelming, so intimidating. But there's one who has not left us. I felt the Lord's strong presence as I worked and prayed. God has been so good to me. There will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And on those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. See, I made him a witness to the peoples. You are my witnesses, declares Yahweh, my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. I have revealed, and I have saved, and I have proclaimed. I am not some foreign God. You are my witnesses, declares Yahweh, that I am God. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses. 
Is there any God beside me? No, there is no God. I know not one. I, Yahweh, have called you in righteousness, and I will take hold of your hand, and I will help you, and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. This is what Yahweh says. In the day of my favor, I will answer you, and in the day of salvation, I will help you. I will keep you, and I will make you to be a covenant for the people to restore the land and to reassign its desolate inheritance. So today we begin. Yeah. 